Hi, and welcome back to our summer series at Central Heights called Words to Live By, where you get to know one of our pastors or leaders in the church a little better as I interview them, and then they're going to share uh, some verses from Scripture that have really impacted their life. And so today our special guest is David Morelli. That's right, Morelli. David, welcome here. Ah, good to be here. I have to say, going back when uh, we first started to talk about you joining the team, I was really excited to have some diversity to this <laughs> Mennonite world of ours and add an Italian. Uh, so, um, bene. what's it been like during here at Central Heights and being part of this team? Yeah, well, I remember it got off on a really good foot because we shared coffee and dessert. Yeah. So, right away, right. it was That's like right. we hit it off. Um, but yeah, from the beginning, like my experience, my heart had been to come to a place to be involved on a team of people that were passionate about Jesus and seeing God move in people's lives and see God move in cities and nations and, and around the world. And something that really drew me to Central Heights was, was that heartbeat that mm-hmm. was there and was building and has just gotten stronger. And yeah. so it's kind of hard to believe, but it's going to be f- my starting my fifth year here wow. in August. And um, in the best possible way, it's felt like much longer. We're so glad you're here. Really yeah. are. Yeah, me too. Yeah, me personally. And um, yeah, it's an opportunity for people to get to know you. So let's go way back. Were you born in Italy, raised in Italy? or No, my dad was. Okay. So his family immigrated right after wo- World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was born in New Westminster, B.C., I'm the eldest. That's uh, very Canadian. Very Canadian. Um, so I'm a Canadian-Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I was born in New Westminster um, and grew up for a very early time just around the lower mainland. But the mm-hmm. formative years of my growing up was done in Vernon okay, uh, in the interior of B.C. And what was, was faith prominent in your home or what did that look like? Yeah. So I don't remember a time where I never didn't believe in God. Like there was always a time in my life where God was real. I believed he existed. Um, I think that's largely because my parents um, both had uh, upbringings in the Anglican and in the Catholic church. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had had experiences with God growing up. And so I do remember early days in uh, my life going to church potlucks and being involved in the church. But in my formative years, we drifted away mm-hmm. from the church. A lot of different reasons for that. Mm-hmm. Um, but my experience of the times we did go to church, like Christmas and Easter, mm-hmm. was um, that God existed. But when I went to church, it was not that compelling. Right. Um, didn't hear about the gospel. Didn't hear about Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, it, just, it didn't feel relevant to my life and what mm-hmm. I was going through. And so I think subconsciously I made this decision, like God's out there. He exists. He's just not right. relevant to my life. And so he was there, but just wasn't involved. Mm-hmm. What kind of kid were you like? Well, I've always been a bookworm. Uh, I love books. So my parents used to to bribe us to go to sleep and say, hey, you can stay up 15 minutes later if you read. Hmm. And so it was their way of getting us to bed and then we'd fall asleep. But reading was always just something that I've loved to do and just carry that into my adult life. So I've always been a bookworm. I love being outdoors. I mean, growing up in Vernon, it's like lake life. Right. Cal Lake is one of my favorites, by the way. Yeah, we used to live like two two minutes from there, bike ride. Wow. And so after school, growing up, we'd ride down, mm-hmm. go jump in the water, swim, and then go home for dinner. Uh, it was just a, so I loved being outdoors. I loved being at the lake, going boating, wakeboarding, stuff like that. Now um, when you say we, you have siblings? Yeah, 
I have two younger brothers. Okay. So I'm the oldest, so I have two younger brothers. Uh, we're all very close in age. Mm -hmm. um, so they are um, only three years separate us. Oh, wow. So okay. that must have been fun. Yeah. But tough for mom and dad. At yeah. Times, well, they're amazing parents. Like, <laughs> they're phenomenal. Did you break the bank, though, with uh, like young guys growing up? You well, know, the food our, bill? Our, our grocery bill every month was staggering, according uh, to my mom, which scares me now because we have two young boys. <laughs> right, and yeah. so, um, but yeah, two younger brothers, they uh, are both got their doctorates from the UK. Okay. And are both uh, in academia. I'm very oh. proud of both of them, Michael mm -hmm. and Peter. Uh, and then I have two amazing parents, and they would sometimes ride down with us too. Uh, nice. So I have a really uh, amazing family. Uh, I'm very fortunate mm. to share life with. That's cool. I've met your brothers. Yeah, you can tell you're really close. It's yeah. beautiful. And your mom and dad. It's yeah. really beautiful. So graduated from high school. Then where did where did your path go? Yeah. So so the other thing I loved to do growing up was play hockey. Mm -hmm. um, just from a young age, I just felt drawn to that sport, um, and God gave me the ability to play. Um, I wouldn't have said it like that back then, but I, that's what it was. And so I could play really well. And so growing up, hockey kind of became my vehicle to the best life, mm -hmm. my vehicle to, to, to arrive in life and to, to enjoy all life has to offer. And so I played junior hockey in Vernon for the Vernon Vipers, got a Division One college scholarship. Mm -hmm. So I went down to the States to play college hockey. Oh, you must have been good. I was okay. good enough to get that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That's good. Humbly, yes, I, there was, I could play. I could always yeah. step on the ice and play. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I went to school and got a bachelor's degree in speech and interpersonal communication while I played Division I college hockey. Mm -hmm. um, and that was kind of my entry into the next phase of my life, which was playing three years of professional hockey. Okay. Wow. And then you met? You got married? Yeah. Yeah, so... I'll tell more of that story in, in, in a sure. little bit, okay. but like, yeah. Today you're married to a woman to named Maine, Catherine. Yeah, we met in graduate school and seminary, mm -hmm. and uh, we met and got married this year. We celebrate our eighth, eighth wedding anniversary, wow. and mm -hmm. she's an amazing woman. Just yeah. love her so much. She's, she's a gift. Mm -hmm. uh, and we have two boys. Levi is about to turn five, and Jack is two and a half. And okay. so... Um, yeah, they're the three most important people to me. I love Beautiful. them dearly. Okay, a couple of random questions yeah. before I ask you a more serious one. Tell me about the neighborhood you live in. Mm -hmm. Well, it's great because you're my neighbor. That's right. <laughs> Am I supposed to say that? <laughs> Is that a leading question? Yeah, <laughs> no. obvious question. No, we live in the same uh, townhome complex uh, called Westerly, and we love it. Um, We've lived there for about two years now. Yeah, it's great. And I uh, really enjoy it. Enjoy bumping into you on runs and walks. Walks, and yeah. One good. day, hopefully, swimming in the pool and yeah, all those no things. no kidding. Come on. Um, favorite pasta? Mm. I love I love film. I love watching movies and good stories. So? so pasta? <laughs> pasta? I said your favorite pasta. Oh, favorite pasta. I thought oh. pastime. No. Your favorite pasta. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, favorite pasta. Oh, man. I, um, I love linguine. Okay. Yeah. With what on it? Oh, uh, a good bolognese sauce. Mm -hmm. And do you yeah. make this? I can from scratch. Okay. So invite me over sometime. I will. We're just waiting for these restrictions yeah, so, no so we can do it. No kidding. So um, 
you know, we talked a little bit about, about your faith environment when you were mm -hmm. younger. Yeah. At some point, obviously, you know, you really connected with Jesus. Yeah. How did that happen? Yeah. So as I said, um, hockey was my vehicle to the best life. I mean, that was how I identified myself. That was, you know, my way to experience life to the full. Mm -hmm. And um, after I graduated from university, I was so privileged to play three years of professional hockey, just a couple into the feeder systems into the NHL. And um, I was playing in, in Colorado at the time, so it was my third year, or second year, sorry. And uh, I just started to feel incredibly empty in my life and wondering, is this all there is? You know, as an athlete, you're called to perform and uh, your value is tied to your performance. Friday night, you play well, your value is high. You feel good about yourself. Yeah, Saturday, if you don't play well, it just plummets. Mm. And on the outside, everything looked really good, but I was really empty inside mm. and um, had this sense that there was something that I was missing and I needed to find. And, and a friend of mine, uh, she invited me to church. Mm. And I had kind of been trying some churches again and, um, my experience was largely the same. And then a friend of mine said, hey, why don't you come to the church I go to? And I said, why not? I'll give it one more shot. And that's when I heard the gospel for the mm. first time. And I heard about Jesus and how he loved me. Mm. And he saw me as worth dying for. Not because I did anything, just because of who he was. Oh. And because he saw something in me that, that he saw something worth dying for. And when I heard that, it was like my life, like a light switch went on in my heart. Like, it was like, this, is, this must be it. This must be the thing I'm looking for. That's beautiful. And, uh, yeah, and so very quickly I just was consumed with him and I committed my life mm -hmm. to Jesus. And this was you in know, my mid-20s, so. Wow. I think sometimes, you know, especially if you've grown up in a strong Christian home, there is a, a temptation that the gospel loses its, you know, its wow factor in yeah. our lives. And yeah. Just hearing that just reminds me how powerful and what an yeah. amazing message it is in, in its truth. I know you're going to talk a little bit more about your story. Look forward to that, David, as you share uh, verses that have impacted you. Mm -hmm. And God bless you as you speak to us. Thank you. So the verses that I'm here to share about today that have really impacted my life, they come out of a letter written by a guy named Paul to a church in a city called Philippi. And I first came across Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 to 8, sometime around eight months after I first encountered Jesus and started following him. In those months, I was already so in love with Jesus. I was like this sponge that just wanted to soak up everything there was to know about Jesus and what it meant to follow him. Even after spending all week traveling as a professional athlete, going city to city, sleeping on uh, buses overnight, and waking up early in the morning and going and spending all day playing, even when we would travel and we'd arrive home early in the morning, I just had to get to the church because I wanted to meet with Jesus and learn about him and worship him. It was this really special time, those first uh, six to eight months when I started following Jesus. But on the flip side, it was also an incredibly, incredibly difficult time in my life because alongside this amazing journey that I had begun with Jesus, the most significant relationship in my life was beginning to fall apart. See, before I met Jesus, um, as I said in the interview, uh, I went to school in the U.S. 
And during that time, I met and got married to a fellow athlete. We ran in the same circles. She played volleyball, I played hockey. We met, and the year after uh, I graduated, we got married. And by the time I encountered Jesus and had this life-changing, best moment of my life experience, we had been married for about a year and a half. And looking back, I, as I process this moment, what stands out to me is I had this life-altering encounter with Jesus, and I was reorienting my entire life around him. But my wife didn't have the same experience. For her, something different was going on, something uh, different than what I had experienced was, was going on for her. And I could feel it, and, and I could feel this distance growing between us. Um, she wouldn't say much when I asked her. She wouldn't let me in. There was this wall that had been erected and, and was being built stronger and stronger. And no matter how hard I tried in that time, while so many things were going beautifully in my journey with Jesus, I couldn't get in. She wouldn't let me in to her life and into what was going on for her. And so there I was living in this, this time of confusion and excitement and the mix of all these things. And about six months after I came to encounter Jesus, my wife came and said to me, Dave, uh, I have a vision for my life and you're no longer a part of it. I'm leaving. And I can tell you when I, when I heard that, uh, my, world, my world caved in. I mean, I was, I was devastated. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to say. I, I couldn't speak. I was heartbroken devastated, confused, ashamed. I felt like there was, there was something wrong with me that made her want to leave. I felt like I wasn't good enough. When I looked in the mirror, I saw someone I didn't like. Didn't like. And so I'm carrying this pain around, and I'm, I'm trying to do all these things I could know to do to save our marriage. I mean, I quit hockey. People always ask me, Dave, why did you stop playing hockey? Well, I, I stopped playing hockey to try and save our marriage. That's why I quit. So I quit hockey, this sport that I poured my entire life in and found my identity and my worth and my significance in. I quit hockey to try and save our marriage. I proposed that we went to counseling. I prayed and I prayed and I prayed. Um, and then even after coming home in the immediate aftermath to be in support, in a supportive environment with my family, I even flew back one more time to try one last time to save our marriage. But for her, it was over. Our, uh, she, was, she was done. She was leaving. So she left, and there was nothing I could do. I lost the most significant relationship in my life. And it wasn't just this relationship that I lost. I also lost a dream that I had had. I lost the life that I'd been working towards for 20 years. I lost my permanent residency. I basically lost everything except for Jesus and my family. And it was in that time, in that time of pain and confusion and loss, that's when I came across Philippians chapter 3, verse 7 and 8. And it was so meaningful and it was so impactful to me because of how it hit me at just the right moment, at just the right stage and part of my story. And so I want to share these wonderful life-giving verses with you and to help us feel the weight and the beauty of what Paul says in these verses. I want to go back and start reading in chapter 3, verse 2, where Paul says this. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the fl flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, 
of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And so for me, these are not just words on a page. For me, these feel like they describe my story. They feel like they describe my experience of Jesus. Because like Paul, I had some things that looked really good on a, on a resume. I had some things that were celebrated, that were recognized as giving me value, as giving me purpose and giving me identity. And like Paul, I had a resume that was built up with things like a marriage a job playing a sport at the highest levels, recognition, the life of luxury, staying in, in beautiful hotels, getting free food, all of those things, things this world celebrates, things this world see as having great value, things you wouldn't want to lose or have to let go. And so like Paul, I so resonate with that feeling because like him, the beauty of Jesus, his surpassing worth caused me to rethink everything and reorient my entire life around him. Jesus is that good. He's that beautiful. And for Paul, we see this in his story from the moment that he met Jesus face to face, the moment that he saw Jesus for who he truly was, and he got to experience what Jesus had done for him, his whole life became consumed with Jesus. So much so that when we read the words that we just read, and we learn about what is going on in Paul's life as he writes these words, we see just how much Jesus matters to him. Because when Paul writes these words, he's writing them from prison. He's been in prison for teaching about Jesus, but the prison cell cannot stop Paul. He's so in love with Jesus, and he's so consumed by him that he wants to teach people and help people encounter Jesus and help them follow him, learn what it looks like to follow Jesus in their everyday lives. And so Paul, it just Jesus became everything to Paul. And it's not even a prison cell, not even hardship, not even the worst circumstances could stop Paul from his need to make much of Jesus and to help people know him and follow him. And so here's Paul. He's in prison. He's writing to a group of people in the city called Philippi. And in chapter 3, he starts addressing this way of thinking and living that runs counter to Jesus, the way of Jesus. He starts with this warning, he says, to watch out for people who say that if you want to be forgiven of anything and everything that separates you from God and experience life with God, what the Bible calls salvation, then you need to be circumcised as a sign you belong to God's people and you need to follow the law, this body of teaching and commands that God had given his people. And this group of people were teaching that this was how you experience connection and, and relationship with God. And Paul is pushing back against that. And he's saying that's not who we are as followers of Jesus. He's saying we don't rely on our performance or what we can do. We don't put our confidence in the things that we can do or the rules we can keep or the things that we can achieve. We put our trust and our confidence in Jesus. We put our trust and our confidence in what Jesus has done in his performance on our behalf. And we live by the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's who we are as followers of Jesus. So don't play the game that these people are inviting you to play. 
because it doesn't lead you anywhere. It doesn't lead you anywhere. And so Paul, he starts with this warning, and it's a warning that we need to hear and we even need to listen to today. Because the same issues that Paul is addressing here in these verses are still alive and well in our world today. See, we, t- we still tend to rely on the things that we do to be right with God, to experience peace, to experience joy, to experience security. We still tend to do that, and we still tend to, to feel this need to build a resume that can tell people who we are and tell us who we are and give us our sense of significance. We still tend to do that. And look, it's so easy to drift into this. It's so easy to start doing this. I mean, just think about it. Whether it's in person or online, we so often tend to curate a version of ourselves, don't we? We highlight the things we want people to know, the things that look good and sound good and feel good. We tell about our jobs, our accomplishments, the things we've done or experienced or achieved, and we leave the parts that would make our resume ourselves less appealing out. See, it's so easy to to build a resume and then curate a version of ourselves for the world to see, to rely on what we do for our our identity and our, our sense of significance. And so what we're doing when we do that is the same thing that these people were trying to do that Paul is addressing is that we make our life about our resume, not the story of redemption. We make our life about what we do instead of what has been done by Jesus. And here, Paul's saying, look, You can play the game, and you can even play it really, really well. But at the end of the day, there is nothing that compares to knowing Jesus. Jesus surpasses it all by a long shot. It's not even close. But if you notice, Paul says, hey, if you want to play that game, let's play it. Because if you think you have reason to be confident about your resume, he's like, I have more. Don't believe me? Well, here's my religious resume. And so Paul then starts to lay out his religious resume, his his pedigree, and the performance that he had as a Jewish man before he met Jesus. He says, my Jewish heritage and lineage is as good as it gets. My religious performance is exceptional. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. My family line and my Jewish identity are impeccable. I followed God's commands to a T, down to the very smallest detail. I've got no blemishes on my record. I even went so far as to persecute the way of Jesus. Paul's religious resume is flawless. Everything you'd hope for, everything you'd see as gain, as an advantage, or something to celebrate, Paul either had it or he accomplished it. And not too many people could say the things that Paul could say. Not many people could put the things on their resume that Paul could put on his. See, what we're talking about here when we talk about Paul is someone who had every advantage from birth. Someone who outperformed everybody else in his field. The top 1%, 1%. The elite of the elite. This was Paul. He had every gain you could imagine or ever want in this culture. His resume would have been on top of every single pile. He was the Elon Musk of Tesla, the Jeff Bezos of Amazon. This was who Paul was. And if anyone had reason to fight to hold on to these things and continue to to cherish these things and celebrate these things, it was Paul. But he didn't because none of it was worth anything compared to the worth of Jesus. And so Paul could say, and he does say in these verses, I had all the gain you could ever want, but 
Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul is saying, I thought I had it all, but when I met Jesus, I realized I didn't. Jesus was worth way more than everything that I had. He goes even so far as to say that all the things that he put on his resume or we could put on our resume to tell others about who we are and what we're all about, like your house, your job, your degrees, your certifications, your salary, salary, your relationship status, your possessions, your accomplishments, Paul would say that compared to Jesus, all of these things belong in the trash can. Now, is that harsh? Maybe. Difficult to hear? Absolutely. True? That's been my experience. See, for most of my life, I wouldn't have said that. Absolutely not. All the things that made up my resume, my athletic achievements, my marriage, being a professional athlete, the awards I won, the recognitions I received, the places I traveled, I saw all of it as gain, and together they gave me value and worth and purpose and a sense of significance. See, I was a hockey player. That's who I was. That's how I was known. And I mattered because I play a sport, and I play it well. And then I met Jesus. And I heard about who he was and what he did. I listened and sat in awe as I learned that he loved me for me, not because of anything I did or could do, that he saw me as someone worth dying for, just me. I learned about how he's full of grace and truth, someone who is loving and kind, someone who said they would never abandon me, someone who wouldn't leave. I heard about all those things, and when I heard that, it changed me from the very depths of my heart. And even though I was in the darkest valley, it reminded me that every good thing in our lives, every privilege, every accomplishment, every advantage we have is nothing compared to Jesus. As good as all the things I had on my resume, as good as all the things that you have on your resume, as good as they all are, they don't even come close to having Jesus. And that's what I want to leave with you today. That's what I want to share with you out of my story and my experience with Jesus is that what we gain in Jesus is worth infinitely more than whatever we might lose. And please hear me. Yes, losing anything is difficult. It hurts. It's painful. It's hard, not just in the moment, but in the ongoing journey of living with the reality of what you lost, of what you had to let go of, or what was taken from you. It's painful to lose anything, to let go of anything that matters to you. Believe me, I get it. And so please hear me. I'm not downplaying the things that you've lost or the things you might have to lose in the future. I'm not saying this is easy, but what I am saying is that what we gain in Jesus is worth infinitely more than anything that we might lose. And I want to help us see that. And so let's ask the question, what do we gain in Jesus? When why is this better? What do we get when we get Jesus? When we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about someone of surpassing worth. In another another letter that Paul wrote called Colossians, he gives us this mind-blowing picture of Jesus. He says that when we look at Jesus, we see the God who cannot be seen. We look at the Son and we see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. 
And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning, and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything, everyone. So spacious is he, so expansive that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. And not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people and things, animals and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together, all because of his death. So when we're talking about Jesus, we're talking about someone who has existed for all eternity, someone who was there before the world was created, someone who created the world and crafted the solar system and made stars and animals and trees and fruit and people, someone who was king over the entire universe and yet came in love to die for us and are good. We're talking about someone with immeasurable worth, infinite value, infinite kindness, beauty, goodness, and love, someone who stands alone and above all things, someone whose worth surpasses all things. That's who Jesus is. And when we get Jesus, when we gain Jesus, what do we get? We get Jesus. First and foremost, we get him. He is the prize. He is the greatest gift, the greatest treasure of everything that we get when we get Jesus. But we don't get just get him. We also get everything that was true of him. And this is the staggering thing about putting your trust in Jesus, that the moment that you do that, everything that was true of Jesus becomes true of you. And there are so many things that we could talk about and so many things that we could say we get and receive from Jesus. Like we could talk about how God makes us his kids, how he adopts us into our family. We could talk about how he makes us spiritually alive, how he makes us new creations in Jesus. We could talk about how God makes us holy and blameless before him in Jesus. We could talk about how God forgives us of all our sin, past, present, and future. We could talk about how God puts his spirit in us to help us and guide us and empower us to live the life we've been called to live. We could keep going on and on because it's endless, but what I want to do is really drill down on too is that when we gain Jesus, we gain a love we can never lose and an identity that we don't have to perform for or manage. In Romans, another letter that Paul wrote in the eighth chapter, listen to these words about the love that we gain when we gain Jesus. Paul says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That last line always gets me. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Jesus. Nothing. No circumstance, no pain, no loss, no mistake, nothing. When we gain Jesus, we gain a love we can never lose. And we also gain this identity that we don't have to perform for or manage. Is that we are loved by an eternal, loving God. And that as we receive that love and as we receive our identity from what Jesus has done, not from what we can do, we are set free to live a life from love, not for it. And when I, for someone who grew up thinking that his value and his worth was based on his performance, that is a freeing truth. 
And I want that for you. I want you to see that, what, that God has withheld nothing from us. He's given us Jesus. And when we have Jesus, we have what is most valuable. When we have Jesus, we have what is most valuable. In whatever circumstance or situation you find yourself in, in the good, in the bad, in the in-between, no matter how painful it is, even if, if it feels like it will never get better or couldn't get any worse, in every moment, in every circumstance, if you have Jesus, you will always have what is most valuable. And that is something you can never lose. And so as I close, I just have two quick questions for you to wrestle with. The first is, whose achievement are you going to trust? For your eternity, for your well-being, for your identity, will you trust in your own performance? Or will you trust in the performance of Jesus? And secondly, is Jesus worth more to you than fill in the blank? Is he worth more to you than being in control, than security, than comfort, your job, your spouse, your kids, your money, what you own and what you enjoy, that promotion, those likes or those follows? Is Jesus worth more to you than that? I don't know how you would answer that, but however you answer that, I hope today, as you've listened to my story, as you've heard this, these words from Paul about the worth of Jesus, that you've heard something that puts a rock in your shoe that makes you rethink how you think about Jesus, how you think about your resume, how you think about your life. But above all that, my hope is that today you've seen the surpassing worth of Jesus and that you leave here knowing in a new way that what we gain in Jesus is infinitely worth more than whatever it is we might lose.